welcome to the Logistics Tribe. I'm Boris Felgendreyer, founder of the Logistics Tribe, and today's guest is Professor Roland Siegward. Roland is director of the Autonomous Systems Lab in Switzerland, director of the Institute of Robotics and Intelligence Systems at ETH Zurich, and a world-renowned robotics expert. He's one of the pioneers in the field of autonomous mobile robots, which are quickly spreading throughout warehouses and logistics operations around the world. Our host, Marco Prügelmeier, talked to Roland about the history and evolution of AMRs, what the newest developments are in the field and what the future holds for robots and autonomous vehicles and logistics and our society at large. Super interesting conversation that I hope you will enjoy. Before we get started, a quick thanks to our supporters, Grey Orange. Grey Orange automates warehouse operations through a combination of AI, software and autonomous mobile robots. Grey Orange systems are in place at some very prominent companies such as IKEA or the Danish household goods and furniture retailer Jysk. If you're looking to get your warehouse and fulfillment operations to the next level with the help of autonomous robots and automation, you should definitely have Grey Orange on your list. Check them out at greyorange.com. All right, and now let's move on to the show with Professor Roland Siegward. Enjoy. Hello, Roland. Uh, welcome to the Logistics Tribe. Hello. A pleasure to be here. Yes. Uh, I was looking forward uh, to talk to you for a long time because you are one of the, yeah, of the first people that at least I know that had to do with so-called AMRs, autonomous mobile robots. And that was a, a big chunk of your work so far. Uh, but maybe why don't you introduce yourself a little bit to our audience? Yes, indeed. I'm working on autonomous mobile robots since uh, roughly about uh, 25 years. Now, of course, I was not the first. There have been other people uh, working on this, but I'm probably known working on this because I wrote also early on a book um, which is uh, the topic is uh, autonomous mobile robots, which was, uh, I think, at the right time because this new technology came up and was uh, more and more useful for real applications. I think the book is called Introduction to Autonomous Mobile Robots, right? And this must exactly. be one of the first ones that mentioned the new term AMRs, basically. Or were there a lot of books before that? Uh, when was it coming out? It was, I don't remember exactly, but I think it was uh, 2005, six, uh, so there around. I would have to look it up. Uh -huh. And of course, this probably was somewhat the first book which had really a strong focus on autonomous mobile robots. But there have been other books which uh, really presented some of these uh, new technologies which are linked with uh, sensing and perception, but also mo mobility which um, uh, were also books about how to build your small uh, personal robots to do some ex exercises or um, make, uh, some, some tests in the lab. And how did you get to that topic, Roland? What, what was your first connection to AMRs? Actually, my first connection was probably about 30, uh, two, three years or four years ago. When I was not directly heavily involved in the project, but it, I was working at ETH as a PhD student, and there was a project which was called the Postman Robot, um, which was really also pushing this vision that we develop a robot which can deliver posts and parcels within the, the building of ETH Zurich. This was uh, early on, and I was then for a while also more involved as a postdoc in this project. Uh, but then really the main involvement in this was when I started as a, a young professor at EPFL in Lausanne in uh, 96. 
where we had really a dedication to focus on this uh, new type of robots, which uh, allow mobility in contrast to all these industrial robots, which are somewhat uh, stationary, which have a lot of advantages, which were already well established in industry, but the mobility really offers a new capabilities, but also um, opens a lot of new challenges. And what were the first use cases that you were working on? Were they already in the logistics field or was this coming from the military or from the postal or where did the first use cases come from? In principle, of course, research is not so strongly directly use case driven, yeah. but it's more or less driven with the with some of the challenges in moving around. But as mentioned, the postal service robot was somewhat a logistic robot. Um, it was actually demonstrated at ETH Zurich around uh, 95, 94, 95. Um, uh, but it was never in daily operation. But it was actually an interesting one of the first uh, robots which was really using onboard sensing to freely navigate in, in our buildings. And in my case at uh, EPFL, then I continued also with a lot of robotics for space applications. Mm -hmm. So this was a move, also the moment, this uh, Mars exploration, also the European Space Agency had some work on this, where we, it was on one side on the design of novel type of robots, which are more in rough terrain, um, uh, adapted to different uh, environments, like uh, you would encounter this on, on Mars, but also the whole navigation um, with it which is linked with it. And navigation is, of course, a big topic if you mention AMRs, right? Because there is uh, something called SLAM. Uh, I have to mention that we uh, already did a podcast episode on SLAM and on the technology of SLAM with Cyril uh, Stachnis, who actually was working also with you for some time, right? Yes. Yeah, and uh, But that was a very uh, technical episode on how does SLAM work and what was the, the uh, involvement or the steps uh, uh, of SLAM. What, what I would be interested in, what was, in your point of view, the history of the AMRs um, since the beginning. Could you lead us to some of the steps that, that you see there and maybe some episodes out of your 30 years of experience with AMRs? Yeah, so to my best knowledge, uh, more or less the, the, the first group which was really working on, on uh, trying to have mobile robots which use onboard sensing for free navigation was actually at the Stanford Research Institute um, uh, where they, they had still very limited uh, sensor capabilities. So it was the moment where you used uh, ultrasound mainly. Cameras were not really ready to do this. Uh, laser were not ready. And so uh, they, but they, they showed actually the first steps. And then I think the big move and the big uh, change came with the laser sensors. Um, in the beginning, it was uh, measuring one plane, but this was enough uh, for doing a pretty good navigation in, in structured indoor environments uh, where you uh, can assume that the walls are vertical. And so if you see at one height, then you, you know more or less where you are. And I think this was a, a big uh, change in this field. So it's very often it's uh, some of the sensor technology which makes change, also the calculation power which was will available. And there is, of course, Cyril has grown out of the group of uh, um, uh, Wolfram Burgert and uh, Sebastian Trun and Dieter Fox, which were some of the pioneers using this laser technology together with uh, localization and then SLAM at ex very extensively. And we also did more or less in parallel also this. So 
we had actually uh, in 2002 the, the first really large installation of um, 10 robots working for half a year in a human cluttered environment at an exhibition showing people around and uh, so this uh, was feasible because we had uh, this laser technology and of course a lot of uh, inspiration also from other uh, groups mainly also from the group of uh, Wolfram Brueggert, uh, Sebastian Trun and Dieter Fox which worked at this time or just before uh, mainly together and and pushed this this field. And what, what kind of robots were those, Roland, the one that, that you showed at the exhibition? Yes, um, it uh, was a robot which um, had a base which uh, was equipped with two lasers, a differential drive system, mm -hmm. uh, somewhat round nearly. And then they had a, a, some sort of a very simplified head uh, with cameras in the eye so that uh, they mm -hmm. could look to, to its people. And these robots had to actually bring or guide people through an exhibition. This was uh, the Swiss Expo 2002, mm -hmm. which is uh, happening in Switzerland every about 20 years, an exhibition where we will show the, 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 the public uh, a lot of new technology and uh, crazy ideas. <laughs> and uh, it was a really a great opportunity. It's very, also very, very difficult to do this at this time. <laughs> I can but uh, imagine, these robots yeah. have seen a couple hundred thousand uh, people yeah. And uh, and we're actually working extremely reliably, um, typically about 10, 10 hours a day. What, what was the feedback of the people seeing those robots for the first time? Yeah, in principle, we, we learned also a lot about the perception and, and actually then the question also how these robots should appear and interact with people. We had actually even, even, even some speech synthesis. So you could give in text and so at some uh, uh, position in this exhibition, they, the robots sp spoke to the people. Now, people will then immediately imagine or think that if the robot can speak to them, they can also speak to the robot and the robot should understand. But of course, at this <laughs> time... Then, it, back, back then, that was not yes, possible yet. It was not possible. <laughs> and so there was a lot of interesting elements. And then of course, then it was also interesting to see that people really like to play with robots. So they try to fake it to, mm. to see what happens if I'm standing always Stand in front in the of way. the robot. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. And we had some actually interesting elements. For We, we had a uh, uh, this the sound what you have typically uh, on a car we had this in the robot and if there was st somebody standing in front of a robot for a while it, it started to boop mm -hmm. and uh, and this is actually very easy to understand for people uh-huh okay <laughs> and and anything coming out of this expo like like special requests from companies oh can you build build us that or this or so what do you remember about that of course, one thing which came out of it is um, that we, we started a company because we had to build uh, about 12 robots. Um, and this you cannot do at a university. So we started a company, which is uh, was called uh, Bluebotics, which is still now a company which is doing um, uh, uh, autonomous mobile robots for, for industrial settings like uh, forklifts and stuff like this, but also in logistics in, in general. Mm -hmm. um, uh, which uh, was actually in, originated by, by this project on one side. On the other side, we had a, a very interesting another project, which was, again, somewhat uh, linked with, with artists, where it was a, a robot theater. So we had um, three robots, which uh, had to um, uh, were actors in a theater play. And the story about the play was that there was a, a somewhat a nerd living somewhat nearly alone, uh, but still had some contact and he, he wanted once, in, he invited a, 
a female, um, which he was somewhat in love with it. And he trained with robot how he should behave <laughs> and so on. And it was really a very, very fascinating story. And, and of course, at the end, it was, uh, it totally failed because the robot will, was acting as the, the actor was uh, doing it. But uh, the, the person, then the female came to his house and uh, she did react totally different and he was totally confused. And so then he actually designed his own robot uh, instead of having a, a real human female. But the real robots performed well in this uh, play? Yes, <laughs> it was. And, and I think it's still the case today. So robots cannot improvise. So it actually was a very difficult task for the actors because the actors had actually to act with the robots. They knew exactly how the robot will move and they, they had to follow. So they could actually not uh, improvise and, and if something goes wrong. But it actually worked pretty nicely. Unfortunately, we, we had not too many shows because... It's extremely expensive. It would still be today, but then it was even more expensive. So if you want to go, we were on, on a tour, but only a few places. And the dream in the beginning was to go for a world tour, but it was so expensive because you have to travel all with the, the equipment and then you need the specialists to run these robots. And so uh, it, it was a little bit disappointing at the end that uh, we didn't find uh, you would, we would have needed probably 10 million to really go around the world with this uh, robot theater. Would it be easier today? What do you think with today's technology? It's uh, somewhat easier if, uh, to, to a certain extent, but it's still, I think today the actor, which they act with the robots, they, they are actually challenged by because <laughs> the robots will not uh, understand situations. I think this is still a, a big issue. Robots are not understanding the world. They can uh, do very precise movements and so on, but they cannot really um, uh, react on, on something which goes probably a little bit different than it was planned. Mm -hmm. uh, but you can see, of course, the robots were used in, in dance shows quite, uh, quite often in the recent years. But again, dance shows are very precisely timed. And so they're even if there is together with humans, uh, it works pretty nicely. Mm -hmm. And... Um You mentioned the Stanford Research Lab uh, back then, and I think out of that, the uh, Willow Garage evolved. Yes, or, or yes. What, what, this was strongly linked, yes. Mm -hmm. This was, um, I don't know if you can define, I don't know exactly how this was linked, but it was mainly people from uh, SRI, at the Stanford mm -hmm. Research Institute, which then started with Willow Garage, which was actually a, a wonderful thing. Um, unfortunately, it was then stopped at one point, but actually it really initiated an, 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 another boom in, in this field. Yeah, yeah. So and a lot the, of companies uh, yes. uh, got started actually in at Willow Garage, right? Yeah. Like uh, also Fetch Robotics, uh, I guess, was also yeah. uh, rooted there. What is the difference, in your opinion, between an AMR and an AGV? I don't know if there is a universal defi definition, but I, I would uh, say that AMR is a robot which really can react to changes and does not uh, need changes of the environment to actually move in the environment. So it, it uses its own sensors and can react and uh, uh, avoid collisions, take a different route uh, if it's needed. And AGVs are typically in much more structured in a way environment. So they fo follow line or they have very specific markers which allow them to precisely move. But if there is a change in the setting of the setup of the 
the factory, for example, you have to to change uh, the, the the special markers, for example. Um, and if uh, very often the AGVs they cannot react if something is, uh, for example, somebody puts a pallet in front of the robot on on his trajectory, it will just be stuck there. But the most mobile robots, AMRs, they will actually find a way around it and just continue. So it's somewhat next generation, uh, which means that these systems can handle much more unstructured environment, um, which uh, is actually the big challenge with, with in general mobile robot platforms. If you compare it also with industrial robots, which are typically in a very structured environment, and of course they're even not moving, and all of a sudden you have robots which can move out more or less wherever they, they want. Um, and they can have really very surprising situations, which you, in a production line, you don't have surprising uh, situations, um, typically. Oh, sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but uh, so it's a lot about uh, more flexibility, right? Um, so that you that you are more flexible um, in terms of changing the the uh, pickup station and the drop off point uh, and the route itself. Maybe you don't even choose the route. The, the AMR is choosing the route by himself, the the best route for for his task. Um, but still, a lot of people uh, today, especially in the, in the logistics automation world, of course, they are bringing the argument, okay, but uh, we don't need that flexibility. It's it's useless. Uh, it's not not actually needed because if there is a pallet in the way, it shouldn't be standing there anyways. Yeah, so you <laughs> should get the pallet out of the way. So what what do you uh, what, what do you say to those people? Of course, I think today the logistics, especially the back end where you store the, your material, is uh, is actually built together with the technology which was available, and they have very good and efficient solutions. So the warehouses um, are built so that you can automate them in a very simple way, um, and so there is probably not much need to change this, and you can optimize the the, the volume you can stock in. But if you go to a logistics center uh, today, and I was recently in a couple of tents and also to see what was happening there, there is still the need of a lot of people because you have uh, these interfaces. So in the back end, you have the, the fully automated system with whatever little uh, trains moving around or whatever. But then at one point, uh, you, you will start to improvise in a way because there is a truck coming and you have to load the truck and the truck is not always at the same place. And then you have to get uh, pallets from different places in the same truck and so on. I think there is still a lot of potential. Now, the, que the problem is that from the back end in the warehouse to this problem with loading the truck, it's uh, exponentially more complex. So this is not fully solved today. So that's the reason I think where it's uh, mobile, autonomous mobile robots are still um, uh, have to show that they can do and operate very reliably in very complex environment. And uh, that's uh, still also some elements are in the research uh, field so that uh, we have to solve some, some elements before this can be ready. Um, humans are, are um, forklifts uh, driven by humans. Humans are extremely good in improvising and whatever. Mm. Um, and as soon as you want to do the same, exactly the same job, With robots, it's very challenging. Now you have probably, and, and 
this will be done more and more that also the this uh, interface area where the trucks are and, and whatever the loading area is will become a little bit more structured and then it's feasible with with uh, robots it's not fully structured but uh, at least more so probably we also have to change the logistics processes to a part right to to enable it for amrs and for more automation than we had in the in the beginning with agvs yes absolutely and and this i think is of course uh, the researchers and uh, are dreaming of the mobile platform which can do everything what humans can do but we are still f pretty far from there imagine now if you want to actually deliver um, uh, parcels to to individual houses um, of course driving um, in in a housing area it's uh, i think it's solved today in principle you can do this there is still the question of legal and who and where will they drive or are they driving on the street or the sidewalk but the interface with the Uh, the house is somewhat getting difficult. Mm -hmm. And I think at one point, if you want to do this for an area, you probably should consider to have special uh, mailboxes, which are adaptive for this. Because um, to uh, if people are very in inventive with mailboxes, some are very fancy mailboxes, all are different. Humans can easily deal with this. You just put the parcel in there. But if a robot has to deal with these millions of different mailboxes, it's an additional challenge, which uh, you cannot so easily solve. So if you want to good, uh, do this uh, faster than, uh, than only in 20 years, you probably should consider to, to adapt the mailboxes. Uh, yeah, right. Which is not a big investment, um, if uh, and it's I think it's feasible. So the AMR compatible uh, mailbox basically at your exactly. home. Uh, This is yeah. by the way also what we did with this um, postal delivery system uh, from mm -hmm. from ETH in this project about 30 years ago. Mm -hmm. We had actually spe special boxes and mm -hmm. special places where to put these boxes. So it was then delivering this to different places in the building. But uh, always at stations where you had an easy way to, to exchange the boxes with the mm -hmm. letters and the parcelling. Or another possibility would be to um, have a decentralized hub in the city, which is not far from uh, everyone's home. And then you call your parcel whenever you are ready to just go down yep. the stairs and, and pick it up out of the delivery robot, right? So that you say, okay, please start delivery right now and then you can see it on your app okay it's around the corner i go down the, the the stairs and then pick it up because going up the stairs is still somewhat um challenging but i think we are coming to that in, in a later question that i have prepared yeah. uh just for now just sticking to the amr and agv discussion um would you guess that amrs Are taking over AGVs in the long run, or what's your viewpoint on that? Yes, I think yes, but probably not so fast as some people imagine, because AGVs, including are much, myself, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> because AGVs have, I think, the advantage that you can have a much clearer and easier proof that it's 100% reliable. So it will always do the same thing. It's it's more or less a virtual track. So a train is also somewhat safer than a car because the train will always be on the on the rails, and so there is um, uh, it can jump out of, but typically it will not jump out of the rails. So you have only to be safe that the, in front of the, on the rails there is nothing, and then you're you're in pretty good shape. 
And with HEVs, it's probably somewhat uh, similar. So as long as there is nothing on the track or you can still have a, a somewhat a virtual bumper uh, with a sensor, then um, uh, you know, with autonomous robots where you have to localize in relevant to a map where you have a lot of uncertainties from the map and from the sensors, it can always go wrong. And um, so it's, it's more difficult to really make it 100% safe. And what brings you, I'm curious, Roland, what brings you to the conclusion then, on the other hand, that you would say, yes, AMRs will take over uh, AGVs at one point? Because there, I think there is no reason that we cannot reach the same reliability um, with AMRs, um, and they are much more flexible. So you don't have to change anything in the building. You can actually easily... Uh, probably put stuff in another place and it will still do the job because it can move around. So it adds a lot of flexibility, um, but um, it has to first uh, have the same reliability, which is um, still not so easy, but I think we are getting uh, every day much closer to this. Also by having different sensors. We have lasers, we have also cameras. The combination of laser and camera will allow us to be uh, extremely reliable. So lasers are still for the safety and cameras in addition to the to pump up the re reliability and to bring in other features or what are your current uh, what is your current stage in science right now what are you working on right now Roland We are very often using both. We started more for uh, AMRs with lasers but then we actually moved towards um, more using cameras and this the motivation for this was actually that we started to do a lot in with flying robots and in flying platforms the small drones uh, the laser is too heavy too uh, takes too much energy so there was no way to do this with laser um, at least uh, for for small drones and so we had to go move, move forward with cameras which actually um, it was nice because we were somewhat pushed by the drones to do this And we were among the first that uh, showed that we can do SLAM and localization quite reliably with cameras. Now, the combination of it, of course, is also the next step. So if you want to um, localize in a somewhat structured in indoor environment, a laser might be enough. Um, it, uh, but it can be that, for example, in corridors where it's more or less one long corridor, you, you have one dimension, you cannot measure anything. You have no with, reference points exactly. anywhere. And yeah. with, with cameras, for example, very often we use multiple cameras and some of the cameras are looking up and typically at the ceiling you have a couple of elements. If you Even if you have more or less the blank, uh, mono, all the same walls. Mm -hmm. And uh, if then you combine the two information, you, you have uh, probably the best out of it. And additionally, the more dynamic and uh, changing the environment is the more you would also know to understand what it is. So it's a difference if there is a human in front of the robot or a pallet. Now, uh, to measure the difference between human and pallet is not so easy only with the laser. It's also sometimes uh, difficult with the camera because you don't have the depth information. But in the combination, you t more or less can today uh, extremely reliably detect humans and distinguish because humans will probably move away. The pallet will not move away. So it's important. Humans are also, you should at least absolutely avoid to, to co collide with humans. So I think it's this additional semantic information 
you can actually extract from the camera. You're missing the depth information typically, but there the, the, the laser helps you. And probably the, the humans, detecting humans is only the first step, right? You could detect anything. It's a pallet, it's a forklift, it's a root train, it's, uh, I don't know, something that does not move or a garbage bin or something like that uh, yeah, that somebody is, misplaced. Yes, this is exactly, I think, where a lot of research also around SLAM is now focusing, including our work we do at ETH here is really that we want to describe the environment not by geometric features, uh, which is uh, walls and corners or whatever, or a visual feature, but really about objects and structures. So that, um, because you on one side, you can actually compress the information quite a lot. One big wall you can describe if you know that's a wall with a couple of, of uh, parameters. But if you have a, a a point cloud, it uh, can takes, uh, take a lot of uh, memory to do this. And if you want to do really useful task in an environment, and uh, then you have to understand what it is. So you have to find objects and uh, it's first segmentation of the environment in, uh, in objects and then classify these objects. And this is absolutely required if you want the robot to do a task in, in our ha household at one point. To, to find a, a glass or whatever, um, but it also also is already required in a lot of uh, simpler tasks because the household task is, is, I always think that this is one of the most difficult tasks um, to, mm -hmm. to clean up the kitchen by <laughs> the robot. This is extremely yeah. difficult. So uh, take out the dishes out of the dishwasher, which is often demonstrated somewhere. This is this is the the high the highest class yeah, of, of use exactly. cases. Yeah. And there is not not only about perception and understanding, uh, but it's also about the tactility or mm -hmm. the dexterity of, of of robot hands. We are so far with robot hands from what we humans can do with our hands. And mm -hmm. um, as, I think as a robotic scientist, sometimes you really realize what wonderful uh, evolution uh, uh, brought out uh, what we humans can do, which will be extremely difficult to, to match with the technology. Yeah, let's see what Elon is doing on that yeah. <laughs> <laughs> with his robot. Yeah? Um, Roland, you, you mentioned drones. Um, what are, in your opinion, good use cases for drones and what are bad use cases for drones? Of course, uh, I want to start probably with the bad use cases. I think everybody agrees that it should not be become uh, too much really a, a weapon. Um, uh, that's, uh, and we're also not working on this end. But there are plenty of uh, wonderful use cases because drones um, allow to very fast collect data. This might be for agriculture so that you have a better view of what is happening on your field, where you probably should put some fertilizer in or some additional water. Or if you want to map an, in, uh, an environment because you are, you are going to do a construction or you are in the middle of the construction and you can um, actually map the progress. This is a field where drones are already very largely used. And of course, it's also very largely used for, for uh, taking videos. Um, uh, a lot of sports are using drones now to take images from the air. So if you want to, today, uh, if you uh, see a, a bicycle race, typically you have also images from the air. And this is feasible now today with these drones. It was done before with 
big helicopters, but it's expensive and not really sustainable. Everywhere where you gather data, right? Uh, where yes. You, uh, you didn't mention the transport issue so much now. What, what do you think about transporting goods with uh, drones? Yes, yeah, so I think uh, it's in. Uh, it's always a question: uh, Is it um, efficient enough, and is it uh, probably uh, really also good for society? I think there is a couple of issues with this. Um, you know, if if you transport a person which was injured fast to the hospital, everybody would agree helicopters is a good thing. Now, if you would like to start to transport people to the workplace with helicopters. And if you want to see how loud helicopters is, I don't think that is what the society as large wants to, to see. And additionally, of course, it's not very efficient. It's still more efficient to go on ground. Um, I think there is a, some fields where it's probably even more efficient if you want to bring some stuff up to an alpine hut in, in the mountains, mm -hmm. um, a, a drone or today a helicopter, but in the future, this will be drones probably without a pilot in it because then you have extra payload because you don't need a pilot. And I think this will come. Also delivery in, in the outback or whatever is houses where, which are far apart, where you might be more efficient than running there with a truck. Mm -hmm. But um, in cities, I don't think that this is a good idea. Um, I think in a lot, most cities, there will be such much, a lot of uh, opposition to, to have then delivery drones in big volumes because it's, it will be noisy. Um, because of the noise and, of course, also the safety, probably. Yeah, of course, there's also safety. Uh, imagine if you have uh, thousands of drones in a bigger city, which is running in permanent, you will have from time to time one falling down. Of course, safety is, is also there with the truck, which is driving, which uh, eventually drives in, into people. But but um, you will have much bigger volume. And I think today it's, uh, you, would, you don't want to introduce new technologies, which are dangerous for, for humans. And then, of course, there is a, this big dream, which is a long old dream to use the third dimension for, for commuting. And there is now a lot of uh, this uh, um, uh, aerial taxis or urban mobility, which got a lot of funding. I'm not so strongly believing in this, again, because it's, it's not so efficient. Um, it will be noisy. And so I think it's it's uh, might have some interesting uh, niche applications, but it will not never probably become the big volume. Mm -hmm. um, only if you think of, of the efficiency, we, we cannot permit to fly even more um, and f uh, burn fuel and, and in the air. You, you typically, if you won't fly a little bit longer, it's very difficult to do this with battery mm -hmm. because the batteries are too heavy. Yeah. Okay, yeah, interesting. Um, we already came by uh, uh, delivery robots. What's your opinion on that? And how long will it take until we will see larger amounts of delivery robots? Will it come in the first place? Or uh, what, what, what's your opinion on that? Of course, as a robotist, especially with mobile robots, I would be happy to see much more delivery robots. But also there, it's it's somewhat a little bit difficult um, because there is a lot of hurdles, which are at one point even not the technology. But imagine in a city um, where I'm living in Zurich, but it's most uh, other cities are the same. You first have to answer the question, where are these robots actually driving around? 
because there is the street, uh, which is crowded. There is the sidewalk where, in, for example, in Zurich, we already have today an issue is the bicycle driving on a side road or then we mm-hmm. have this, uh, this uh, scooters, which scooters, are more and more yeah. popular. So it's, it's uh, I think in a lot of cities, there is no concept how, how to do this. I hope, I think it will be more and more used in, in somewhat environment like uh, big in, uh, industrial campuses where you can uh, deliver coffee and uh, the, the post. Uh, it's only used, for example, also in hospitals to deliver uh, the medication to the different rooms or the, the food or lunch package for the... I think there we will see that this is still a bit more structured environment where you can actually also adapt even. Now in Zurich, they are building a new hospital and they are actually already planning that the delivery uses with robots is part of the whole planning of the building because they... It, they in a large scale? Yes, so there there is a lot of logistics within a hospital, mm-hmm. and uh, they want to to really that some some of these logistics is done by by robots um, uh, which are driving autonomously in this environment. Oh, okay. I will send you a, a pitch deck for noise technologies. Maybe you okay. can forward it there for the storing yeah. of goods with robots in in the hospital. Interesting. Um, wh- what's your opinion in, in the overall about the, the future of the logistics? Uh, how will, will it look like in the future? Yeah, of course, there is a lot of different ideas. And I think what we people have to understand is not about one unit. It's about how all these different elements play together. Uh-huh. We, there is actually, you know, that Elon Musk has this uh, idea of uh, transporting people uh, underground in, in the tubes. There is in Switzerland, Hargo uh, Sutera, which is also an idea. Um, and I think it's good, but they have always to play all together. Mm-hmm. Uh, f- because space for transporting people and humans is limited. And in principle, we would rather have in cities more space for people uh, relaxing and uh, sitting outside and, and chatting instead of, of having um, a lot of uh, parking place and, and a lot of cars moving around. Now, the logistics uh, has the advantage that you can, the more it's autonomous, the more you can actually use the, the side hours. Why not delivery in the middle of night? Because most cities, there is no, no traffic in the night. Um, of course, today it's it's difficult because you need them people working during the whole night. And in Switzerland, there is also some limitations about this. Uh, so you are not allowed to use uh, track, uh, trucks in, in all situations. Uh, you can deliver some stuff, but trucks otherwise uh, should not drive in the night. But um, uh, autonomous uh, mobile robots could actually do live delivery um, in, in cities so that people have everything ready in front of their building in, in the morning. So I think, and this comes back to this idea. Now, there is always this, people speak a lot of about, about the last mile, but it's, I think, the whole chain. At one point, it's, it's produced, at one point, it's stored in, the, in between, and at one point, it has to, to be delivered. And I think there's probably not enough people which also try to think the whole story. I recently, for example, in, in Switzerland, we have the, the place where you, you buy your cars. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of these places are actually also in the city. They don't have enough space to have all the cars which are sold um, later on. Mm-hmm. Now, there are uh, logistics centers in Switzerland which actually do this preparation of cars. So they, the cars are delivered to a place uh, which is a little bit more remote. 
And then they are actually polishing and everything, preparing the car for the end customer. And they're bringing this the same day and the end customer is picking it up at the garage. Mm-hmm. Um, where they, in the they, city, the garage yes, in, in the city. city. Exactly. And these are then also a new concept, how we, we distribute. I think it's we need a change um, on how we move people and goods around um, so that we uh, we have the best quality of life, I think, at the end. Mm-hmm. I think it's, it's really somewhat painful that we use so much space for cars, mm-hmm. which are typically with one person into the car in cities. Imagine if you would have only 30% of all the 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 roads all of a sudden available as parks for people. This would be wonderful. <laughs> and we and, have and to think about this. And of course, there is a lot of concepts which are uh, metro is is like this. So we just move this on the ground. This is one options and, and but you have to play all the things together. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So how do things interconnect in the future then and how they play together, right? To, yeah. to get the best out uh, for the people living in the city. Uh, but Just one quick question. When do you think the, the autonomous cars will fully come so that they drive without a driver? Yeah, so I, I first have probably to define what the fully autonomous car is. Because level there is five. this level, level five. five. <laughs> yes, now still with the level five, um, you can also say oh, probably level five, but not in all weather condition. Yeah, okay. I think it's, we are still far away from having a car which can handle more or less everything was with you we humans can handle we we can actually drive in in the countryside if there is a lot of snow you don't even see the street anymore whatever this is still will be extremely difficult on the other side the in a somewhat uh, known and structured environment cars are driving already since quite a long time so the first autonomous cars there was a project uh, a daimler in germany about 30 years ago or nearly Uh, and there was a similar project in in US from uh, CMU mainly, which showed that it's feasible on on freeways because they are more structured. Now, in in a somewhat structured environment, um, I think it's today somewhat solved. Um, and now the question is again also how they will be integrated. It's it's much more difficult if it's a mixed traffic, if because you human will play with the autonomous cars. Um, I always assume that there will be soon autonomous taxis in in probably some cities in a, in a inner circle where people will not drive. Pro- probably there will be still uh, some drivers with trucks or whatever, but uh, the, not everybody is allowed to drive because then it's much easier if you have uh, only autonomous cars in a Singapore could be a place like this because in Singapore it's really a lot of taxis mainly and not so many individual cars. So you could just say, uh, yes, in some region of Singapore it's only only the autonomous cars. This is feasible. But and then the, uh, today yeah. there is no single autonomous uh, car which actually can handle uh, snow. Uh, this uh, then uh, there is a lot of other situations. In the fog, of course, it's also difficult for humans, but um, uh, for autonomous cars, it's even more difficult. So I think there is a lot of small elements, which in some cases, for example, these tests in Arizona, they probably will never have the case of snow. It's, mm-hmm. uh, but um, uh, in other places, you might have uh, snow. Yeah, right. So in certain conditions, probably f- uh, are fairly fast, uh, but in all conditions, in all circumstances, 
quite yes. still a, stale, yes. a challenge, right? Yeah. Um, and I hope that uh, society will then also develop the concept how to use this because it mm -hmm. can be a, a really a win or it can be a lose. If it would, re the reaction would be that people are even longer doing longer commutes because they can work in their car and we have even more cars. But if you um, do it the other way around, you say longer distance you do by, by train or whatever, public transportation, but then autonomous car will give you the flexibility in the local neighborhood uh, where you don't have buses. And this concept, I think, uh, can be extremely valuable because then you will have, uh, at one point, hopefully, no people driving with their own car in the city anymore. And these cars, which are bringing people in the city, you can then actually um, have uh, multiple uh, people sharing a car. And these cars will not park there because they will continue to move. And if they are not used, then they will be parked outside the city. I think there is a lot of potential to have uh, a quality of life, especially in bigger cities, which increases with autonomous cars, but you have to do this wisely and you have to integrate this with, uh, with um, public transportation. As you mentioned, um, visual slam basically for AMRs. Uh, just one cu curious question from my side on the automotive uh, uh, side and what do you think about that? I know that Tesla is going a little bit uh, a special way in setting a lot of on cameras and no lidars. Do you think this is the right direction or what's your opinion on that? Um, I think it's the wrong direction for the next 10 years or 15 years. It might be the right direction in, in 30 years or 20 years. The, the reason why it might be, because we humans have demonstrated that it's, it's enough to have eyes. Um, so cameras should do it. But today we still have some, some elements uh, that we are probably better than, than artificial uh, eyes and cameras. And additionally, if we want to integrate autonomous cars on our streets, they have to be much more reliable than humans. So I think this will not happen in the society if you have too many accidents. You should really be able to show that you have much less accidents. And the laser helps on this road because laser is an active sensor. So um, you, you are not dependent on the lightning condition. With cameras, um, you might have all of a sudden uh, two cameras which are more or less heading towards the sun and then you have some... Uh, or another car with lights uh, are shining in your cameras and you don't see anything anymore. With, uh, and there is a lot of these, these issues also if it's dark. And so the laser is good in, in, on one side and the camera on the other side. I, I think it's the best today. I would really recommend to have both or even including radar because they are, uh, if it's very foggy, radar is then the the additional sensor. And I think mainly because we want to have these cars, autonomous cars, as safe as possible. Now, at one point, we will develop. The cameras, uh, by the way, are extremely fast getting better. So we have this dynamic range. Today, cameras are better than human eyes. Probably not than cats. Cats can see in the dark. Mm -hmm. But we have cameras which can see in the dark and in a very bright light, where we as a human have problems. We have more and more also cameras which can extremely fast adapt. So if you fly, if you drive into a tunnel, this you need. So 10 years ago, this was not available. Then it was out of scope to drive on with cameras. Today we are getting closer. And in 10 years, we are probably getting much closer also with the 
the artificial intelligence and everything which uh, then uh, treats the, the, the camera signals. But you need first good signals. Mm -hmm. So it will be at the end be a, uh, a critical timing issue, right? So <laughs> if you only set on cameras right now, um, it might be a little bit too early still. And then you have to postpone the full autonomy level again and again and others will maybe be faster because they're using lidars in addition yes of course today this full autonomy level is is somewhat nearly already given and this can also be done nearly by camera today is on freeways on, on structured roads which uh, it's much less complex um, but mm -hmm. if you want to really cover also then in the city and and really be absolutely sure that you don't uh, hit people, um, I would really strongly recommend to, to combine cameras with laser. Yeah, for our logistics community, of course, uh, probably the, the autonomous trucks is even more interesting. Uh, yeah, when are they coming and so on? And it's probably closely connected from the timeline to, the, uh, to what we just discussed right now. Um, but that opens also always the question about cutting jobs in industry versus automation. Uh, maybe this is a last sentence from your side, uh, Roland. What's, uh, what's your takeaway for, for our audience on that topic? So I'm personally not so skeptical and, and don't see too much problem. Probably I'm too optimistic because I'm, I'm working in this field. But you're a robotics least, guy. <laughs> yeah, but if you look, and, and it really depends a little bit on the regions and in the world, and uh, I think in developed countries, we have a lot of problems to find people doing this. Mm. Um, peer, working in a logis logistics center, doing this part, which is not done, uh, done autonomously, autonomously today, it's very difficult. In Switzerland, um, typically a Swiss person is not doing this. So we have... Uh, send people moving in from other countries uh, where we, they have probably more difficulty to find a job. But in principle, it's not so easy to get these people. And a lot of fields in this. In Switzerland, in, in farming, a farmer has a, a really hard problem to find people working. It's the same in US. They have to move the Mexican in and out for, for the, the whole farming season. And um, I think it's it's um, much less of an issue than we think because it also will take time and people will actually start to do something different. I think there, the jobs of people, for example, uh, cleaning people, which are now moving around with their uh, cleaning machine uh, eight hours uh, at an airport during night. Um, and there are 20 people doing this. Uh, typically, the turnover of these people is very high because people don't like to do this. Uh, and if they have a bad job, they will ch change. But um, in the future, there will be probably uh, one person doing uh, this with uh, 10 robots. Uh, the robots do this fully autonomously. To a certain extent, there will be always surprising situations. And then the human is, is asked. Mm -hmm. And so the, the human also with is, teleoperations probably yeah. right. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's it's will be this this uh, job um, automation and job is is typically always a transition where it's somewhat getting a little bit difficult because some jobs will disappear. And we had in the past with automated industrialization um, moments where it move, it changed extremely fast. I think it's less critical with robotics because it will not change extremely fast. 
these machines are so complex that it's not that all of a sudden tomorrow everything is done by delivery or what and we don't need a postman anymore mm -hmm. so this will be somewhat uh, nearly a generation or uh, until the, the whole change has happened and so in this time actually people will adapt new jobs will come up and others will disappear yeah and that's probably um, even more risk on the other side around right where when we don't get any more the people and we we will we're not ready to optimize yet yeah so then yeah. we have a big risk for for our economies uh, in switzerland yeah, and if, germany <laughs> if you see at least most developed country uh, with a special case uh, japan the extreme case they are lacking people um, and they need actually automation uh, and otherwise they, they they cannot handle this anymore because this overaging society um, you need uh, you know, don't have enough people for all the the jobs which are needed roland as much as i was looking forward to this conversation as much as i really enjoyed it uh, thank you very much i have a lot more questions on my paper here including some of the companies robotics companies that you founded uh, like bluebotics and seven cents robotics um, i think we have to go for a second part here in uh, in uh, uh, some some weeks or months uh, I really enjoyed it. I hope our audience uh, did also get something out of this, this talk that we had, this chat. Thank you very much and greetings to Switzerland. Thanks very much. It was also a great pleasure for me and I'm happy to come back um, to speak also of, about the startups and, and how we transform technology from research to with real applications. Thank you very much. Thanks. All right, that was the Logistics Tribe podcast episode with Professor Roland Siegward on the topic of autonomous mobile robots and logistics. I hope you enjoyed today's show. If so, please make sure to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss any of the future episodes. I'm Boris Fergentreyer. Until next time. <laughs>